genealogies. And it's one of the more extensive genealogies. In fact, the entirety of chapter 36 is devoted to uh, Esau and his descendants. And so what does this have to do with us? These descendants of a line that is not even part of the redemptive line of Israel, and yet there is such detail paid and given attention to in this passage. All of God's word is inspired and profitable to us. That is the conviction that we take as we come to this passage. And so let us also come to the Lord in prayer and ask that he would help us see what his word has to speak to us this morning. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your, the details of your word. As you give us how you have worked in different families and different times. And I pray this morning, Lord, as we come to this passage, we would see how these lives, the experiences they had, the cities they established, might help us know how we are to live today. We thank you for your good and gracious word, the good and gracious providence that has sustained all the human race through all time to this present day. And Lord, you have established your people, the church. And just as the patriarchs of the past sojourned, so we are sojourning today. Thus far, you have brought us. And we pray, Lord, that you would bring us home. And we pray this in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. And so I want to begin in a strange place because uh, Christmas has just passed. But I do want to go back to Christmas past. In fact, uh, in the particular uh, story that we have from Charles Dickens, some of you may be familiar, probably many of you, with the story A Christmas Carol, where Ebenezer Scrooge is confronted by the ghosts of Christmas past, present, and future. The ghost of Christmas past reminds Scrooge of the young boy that he used to be, and the poverty and the loneliness that he grew up in. The ghost brings him to a time of happiness that he had as a young apprentice to a master named Fezziwig. It reminds him of the loss that he had of his fiancée when she realizes that money has a greater hold over his heart than she does. The ghost of Christmas present helps Ebenezer to see how others see his miserable, miserly, and mean existence. And finally, the ghost of Christmas future reveals the meaninglessness of everything that Scrooge has lived for. And the point of the tale is to force Scrooge to think about what gives meaning to life. And after the very first visit from the first gross, Scrooge says, and you can see the change in his heart beginning when he says, Spirit, conduct me where you will. I went forth last night on compulsion, and I learned a lesson which is working now. Tonight, if you have aught to teach me, let me profit by it. And so what is the relevance of Dickens' tales to our passage, which was filled with all the interesting names that I spared you from reading. 
Well, we get a suggestion from the name that Dickens chose, Ebenezer Scrooge. And that name Ebenezer, of course, comes from the Bible itself. It comes from 1 Samuel chapter 7, when the Philistines were oppressing the nation of Israel. And Samuel commanded the Israelites to put away all the gods that they had accumulated, much like what Jacob had done when God had commanded him. And the Lord shows his power and defeats the Philistines for Israel. And Samuel sets up a stone that he names Ebenezer. Eben meaning stone, Azar, to help. And so this was the stone of help. And he says, thus far, the Lord has brought us. And this should be something fairly familiar to us because we have seen Jacob do this multiple times through his sojourning. Remember that when Jacob fled from Esau and God visited him in a dream? And after that dream, Jacob sets up a memorial as a reminder of God's promises to him. And he makes a promise to God. And he says, if you will do this, and if you will bring me back to the land, then I will give you a tenth of everything. And so you can see at that time, Jacob's relationship with God is very much in that beginning stage. He is still learning what it means to trust God. God has given this, him this amazing vision. And even in light of this vision, Jacob has his doubts. But he says, if you will do this, God, then I will enter into this relationship with you. Now when Jacob has returned, and he and Esau have been reconciled, and he's in this land, but at the same time, it seems like his family has lost his ways. Because when they came back from, when Jacob came back from the land where Laban was living, you remember that Rachel had taken the household gods with her. And it seems like this pattern of idolatry has continued within his family. Because after the incident with Dinah happens and Jacob fears for his life and the life of all his family, he commands them to give up all the idols that they had accumulated, and he buries them under a tree. And what this shows is that they had accumulated in a, perhaps a syncretistic way, where they were combining the worship of Yahweh together with the worship of all these other gods. But we know this cannot possibly please God uh, to be worshipped only as one of many gods. But we saw at the beginning of chapter 35 where God had told Jacob to arise, and Jacob had commanded his family to give them all the foreign gods that they had. And he buried them under a terebinth tree. We see that in chapter 35 and verse 4. They buried them under a terebinth tree that was near Shechem. Now, why are these details recorded for us in Scripture? And we see a number of these things happen. When Deborah dies, and remember that this nurse, who was Rebecca's nurse, would have been someone who was very precious to Jacob. Because, as you remember, between Esau and Jacob, Esau was a favorite of Isaac. And Jacob was a favorite of Rebekah, and Jacob was one who stayed among the tents. And this nurse was probably one who had raised Jacob and had been with him his entire life. And she passes away, and he buries her under an oak below Bethel, which Jacob names Alam Bakuth, meaning oak of weeping. And then God appears to Jacob again when he returns to the place where 
God had visited him with that vision. And Jacob sets up a pillar of stone. He calls the place Bethel, house of God. And then when Rachel dies, Jacob sets up a pillar over her tomb, which the text tells us is there to this day. And when we read that there to this day, it doesn't mean necessarily that that stone or that memorial is there to our present time, but at the time of the writing when Moses would have given this to the Israelites, that stone would have still been standing there. And so it's something that they would see when they came into the promised land. That stone was there to that day, and it was a reminder to them that God had watched over their families, that God had brought Israel out of Egypt, and they would have seen it as they completed the Exodus. And so what is the purpose of all these memorials? And chapter 35, leading into chapter 36, really puts us in the frame of mind with all these memorials that if you were of the nation of Israel and you're coming back into the promised land, and Moses was now recording these things down in what we call the Pentateuch, and you would have received them, what all these things would have been, would have been markers of God's faithfulness to his people, things that they actually could have seen. And so the point of all this seems to be to emphasize the importance of remembering. Remembering God's faithfulness, remembering our history, because the history of humanity is also a history of God's faithfulness to his people. And this is exemplified for us as we look through the book of Genesis, how God had been faithful to his people. And so what was true for Abraham is also true for us. And we see, as we follow this family line of Abraham, a peculiar pattern. Because there have been branches coming off of this line of Abraham. And so you remember when Abraham set off from Haran, he journeyed with his nephew Lot. And at one point, Lot departs. And we have a short accounting of Lot and his line. And from his family will come, as the text tells us, the nations of Moab and Ammon. And then when Abraham and uh, Sarah bring Hagar into their family in a way that is not in accordance with God's plan, and Ishmael is born. So we have yet another branch coming off of this line of Abraham. And there, too, we see God's continuing faithfulness. He promises Abraham, I will make many kings come from your son Ishmael. And we see that God keeps this promise as there are 12 princes descended from Ishmael that we read about in Genesis 25. And now we come to Esau in chapter 36, and the entire chapter of Genesis 36 is devoted to recounting these generations that have come from Esau. And so I would ask the question again, why should we care? This is not our history, and this is not even actually the history of the Israelites. On the face of it, the text simply sets before us the generations of Esau. But why? Why does God want his people to know of this family, the family of the brother of Jacob, the line that descends from him? What, we, what would have been the effect of this text, the reason that God gave this to the Israelites as they came out in the Exodus? What we might call the perlocution, the effect of the text on that original 
reader. Well, let me give you perhaps an analogous sort of thing that many of us can relate to. Many years ago, I went on a trip with my parents to China. Uh, I went, actually, I've gone on multiple trips with my parents to both China and Taiwan. And one of the things that I remember about those trips, especially when we went back to China, is when my dad would bring us to different places, and he said, this would be a place near where I grew up. And I, I remember one part, we were driving along a particular place, and there's all these, it was kind of strange, it looked like these stores that were in these really kind of big concrete, almost seemed like fortresses, uh, built into the hillside. And I asked my father about that, and he said, oh, those would have been the bomb shelters that were constructed during the time of World War II. And so there were all these different kind of connections that I started seeing between my own life and uh, where we were in China. And China ceased to be just this country on a map someplace with people speaking a language that I can barely understand. And I remember one of the things that I thought about is, what if they hadn't left? Because, right, I mean, there's, there's like a billion people in China. And a very small percentage of those have gone to very, various countries all over the world. And very few of them, uh, percentage-wise, have ended up here in the United States. And that's something that's true for all of us. But when we go back there, isn't there a sense of connection or wondering, as I did? What if mom and dad hadn't left China? And remember, one of the effects of that was I did feel much, a much closer sense of uh, kinship with the people there. Because if they had left, I would have been right there, walking among them. I would have understood the language much better. And I would have been enjoying the food all my life that we had been purchasing from these street vendors, which I learned later on is probably not the most uh, healthy thing to do. <laughs> And looking through the lens of the history of my family, where we came from, and thinking of that effect would be something that would be somewhat analogous in a certain way for these Israelites, as they would have received God's word, recounting for them the history of their families and why it was that they had come to the place where they were. And there would also have been a sense of kinship with the people around them. And this would have been very strange for them because they were now returning to a land where some of these nations now were Ammon, Moab, Ishmaelites. And these would now be the enemies that they faced as they returned to this land. But they could also see through this text that they were also their own relatives. What is it that God wants us to understand as he recounts for us this history of Abraham's family and the various lines that come from this family? This morning, what I would like to do is highlight three reasons why the history of Esau's family is so important, not only to the Israelites, but also to us. The first thing that I want to draw from this is that we remember that God is faithful. One reason why Esau and his family receive so much attention in the biblical text is because God has been faithful. 
we have both the recounting of Esau's line, of Lot's line, of Ishmael's line, and the reason is that God had made promises. And these relatives and descendants of Abraham had prospered in the land just as God had promised. This list of names reminds us that God knows them. We don't know how this text was recorded. We do know that Moses is likely the author of much of what we have in the first book, five books of the Bible. How would they have uh, known these particular lines and descendants? Perhaps they were able to uh, gather some of that for the records that the people kept. Perhaps it was that God simply revealed these names to Moses. But one of the things that is clear is that God knows each and every one of these persons. And he's fulfilling the promises that he made to this family. He does not forget. He does not forget his people. He does not forget those whom he has made his covenant with. <clears throat> one of the things that my father <clears throat> shared during his testimony, I don't know if you remember, there was a while ago my dad came up and he gave a little bit of his uh, testimony uh, from his uh, many years of life to our church. And early on in his career, I don't know if you remember this anecdote that he shared, but he had been working for a company that had been sold to another company, and so we were changing jobs, and he had just been starting to get established. And there was a field that was, I think, out in California, and he knelt on that field and he prayed, God, if you will bring me back here one day. And many years later, when he had prospered in what he had done, and God had given him great success as a plant breeder, uh, as, as, as he's developing these different lines of corn, alfalfa, and soybean, God had allowed him to go back to that same place that he had come from. And that was a reminder to my father of God's faithfulness to him. And he's told that story not only to myself, but also my four sons. And that is a story that we should remember of God's faithfulness to our family. And hopefully my four sons, Emmeth, Johann, and Kesed, and Tobiah, will remember that God has been faithful generation after generation to our family. And I ask you the question, how have you seen the faithfulness of God in your family? And these are stories that we can tell to one another. And one of the things that we have been doing in our church as we hear the testimony of those who join this church family. And part of that is because we want to get to know one another. We want to be a community that supports one another. We want to be a community that encourages one another. And one of the most encouraging things, uh, Elder Gordon and I have had this uh, experience many times, is we've been hearing the testimonies of many different people, even as you have. And I hope you're encouraged by the different ways, the unique ways that God has worked in each one of our lives. And today we'll be hearing later from Nathaniel as he gives his testimony. And I hope that that will be an encouragement to you. But as we re read this genealogy of all these names that sound very foreign to us, these would have been ways that the Israelites coming back in the land would know God knew these people. And he kept his promise and he was faithful to keep the covenant that he had made with their fathers. The second thing, however, as the Israelites would have come back into the land and seen the descendants of the Ishmaelites, and Esau, and of Lot, would have been a warning. 
Because history warns us of our continual temptation to depart from God and to seek our own ways and to go back to the ways of this world. Look at how Esau's generations are described. So at, very, at the very beginning of chapter 36, these are the generations of Esau, that is Edom. Esau took his wives from the Canaanites, Adah, the daughter of Elan the Hittite, Aholibama, the daughter of Anah, the daughter of Zibion the Hivite, and Basimoth, Ishmael's daughter, the sister of Nebaioth. If you compare this list of wives and descendants, it's different from what we had encountered before. Now, there are many different reasons for why the, we have these different lists, and one of it is probably that Esau took many wives, as we saw him already beginning to do earlier in the narrative. <clears throat> but we see particularly that Adah, the daughter of Elan the Hittite, and Aholibama, the daughter of Anah, the daughter of Zibion the Hivite, are Canaanites, and that is forefronted in the text in this particular list. And why is this done so? Well, we've looked at in past weeks about how the Canaanites in particular were living in such a way that was detestable to God. And one of the things that is clear from Esau's line is that they did not remain distinct from the people of the land. God had called their family to come and journey toward a particular land. And he called them to live in such a way, and he was teaching them to trust again in him, and to live according not to the pattern of the world, but live according to God's design, to live lives that were holy, and not to follow the ways of the people around them. And they'd had multiple examples of how God was angry with the way the people of that land were living, perhaps most famously in the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, but this was true of all the Canaanites. But Esau's family, as well as Ishmael's family, and Lot's family, at this point in time, as Israel was traveling back into Canaan, had become indistinct from the people around them. And through history, we know many of the practices for example, the Moabites and the Edomites who practice such things such as child sacrifice. But we see that there's this temptation to go back to the ways of the world and to do things in the way of the world. And part of this also comes up in a different way. If you take the time and pronounce the names in your head and read through this entire chapter, what you'll see is development. You see that Esau has children, and those descendants have families, and then they divide up into clans, and those clans have chiefs, and eventually those chiefs become kings. And not only kings, but you have dynasties being established. In that last section that Irene read for us, we saw that there were kings now passing along their household and, and ruling over a particular land. And this is interesting, because when we compare how Esau's generations have descended and filled the land and acquired territory and established themselves. This stands in stark contrast with Israel as they're coming out of the land of Egypt. Israel is a people without yet a king, and they have no land. And so the ways of God are not the ways of the world. One biblical scholar puts it this way, worldly power does not equate to God's favor. 
Unlike Esau, Jacob had no chiefs or kings yet, no lands to govern, and no full tribes. He was a sojourner. Secular, worldly greatness comes swifter than spiritual greatness. Do you see that? Esau had departed in, in our text from Jacob because the land was not great, uh, could not support the, the wealth of their two families. But Esau's families, from the worldly perspective, had prospered far more than Jacob. They had lands and territories and lines and chiefs and kings and dynasties. Whereas Jacob's family at the time of the Exodus were people who had been enslaved by the Egyptians, who God was now leading out of Egypt back towards the promised land. And this would have been a lesson for the Israelites as they were coming out. Here was a people that was far more established than they were, far more in a worldly sense secure than they were. They're not wandering through the desert and only sustained because God would daily rain down manna from the sky so that they could eat. But these were people with land and fields and crops and governments established in the land. What do we find our security in? Are we seeking first to be established with God? Do we seek first his kingdom and his ways? Or is it that we are very preoccupied with establishing ourselves in this world? Are we willing to wait upon God in his time for what he would accomplish in our lives? Or are we impatient to acquire all that this world has to offer the most quick way that we can? And this brings us to the third point that we might draw from this history. And that is a question. Why does God's plan take so long to unfold? We know that uh, Israel had left land during the time of the famine, and then they had come back to land after 400 years, many of which were spent in slavery in Egypt. We do know the reason for some of this waiting. God has said that the wickedness of the Canaanites has not come to its fulfillment. But why all this waiting? Why this slow working from generation to generation? Why couldn't Christ have come in Genesis chapter 4? Well, let's think about why this might be, why it is that God has all this history, thousands of years before Christ will come. Suppose that we would call a new pastor to come to PCC, even as we're looking for a uh, family pastor now. When the new pastor came, he'd have to get used to the way that we do things here. When he came, he might at first, you know, having just come out of seminary, have these ideas of what it meant to have a biblical sermon. And so we might want to ask him to shorten his sermons a little, going down from perhaps an hour to 45 minutes or so. We might ask him to start using more illustrations. Since we're used to engaging PowerPoint presentations from Elder Gordon, we might ask him to think about using PowerPoint. And there's other unique features of our church that he would have to get used to. Now, if we were wise, would we ask him to make all these changes all at once? No, we'd probably try to break him in slowly, get him to slowly shorten those sermons down a little bit. 
fall asleep when he went too long, the signal that you're getting a little too boring. Respond well and say, oh, that was a wonderful PowerPoint. I wish we could have more sermons like that. But the point is that change happens over time. And especially in the type of work that God is doing, it's far more difficult in terms of what he is trying to help us to recognize and to do, the kind of transformation that he is trying to work. Because in the, in the example that I used with a new pastor coming to PCC, and I just for the record, I felt I was treated very, very well. My feelings weren't hurt at all when Elder Gordon asked me to shorten the sermons. <coughs> um, now I lost my point. <laughs> but uh, the work that God is doing is a work that goes against the grain of our hearts, right? Because someone coming here, even, even in, a, in, in a relationship where you're motivated and you like each other and you want to change and you're trying, like in a marriage, for example, you're trying to come to, to have this good relationship together, change takes time. And it's difficult, and some changes never, ever happen. But think about the kind of transformation that God is trying to work in us. It's a transformation of the heart. Our hearts are inclined in one way that's very different from the way that God wants us to go. And so that actually would be, you know, if we were to go back to uh, Charles Dickens' tale, what I would say would be kind of a, a little bit of a weakness in the tale, right? Because how is it that Ebenezer Scrooge changes? He's confronted with the meaninglessness of his life. And he's shown how he will end up if he doesn't change his ways. And so fundamentally, what is the motivation for Scrooge's change? It's a selfish motive, right? This is the kind of life that you'll end up with if you don't change. These are the kind of consequences for you if you continue living the way that you do. But what's depicted for us is an entire instantaneous change of a man who goes from being this miserly, mean-hearted man to a very generous man who no one can celebrate Christmas the way that he does. Heart change is much, much more difficult. And yet there is a connection with our text here today. Because God, as he works to transform us, wants our cooperation. He does not change or transform us apart from our own will. Because it is us that he seeks to transform. It's us that he is seeking to change. And so he doesn't just flip a switch and make a different person. It's still you that he is working in. It is your desire, your heart, your loves, your passions that he is seeking to transform. And so what he shows us is through these lives, through the story of his working through his people, through these things that we are to remember, he shows us how we are to change. I'll give you one example of this, and, and perhaps something that's like a lesser, sort of in a certain way, uh, part of God's plan. We know that in the beginning, when God created Adam and Eve, he created one man and one woman to be married. Now, after the fall, what we see is, in many cases, we'll have these patriarchs who have multiple wives. But it isn't until the New Testament and Paul's instructions to the church that we see this design implemented again in the church. 
one husband, one wife, one man, one woman united for life. Why so long? Well, we have a clue from when Jesus addresses this question in the book of Matthew. And it's regarding a question about divorce and remarriage and, and what Jesus answers to the religious authorities at that time. He says, it was because of the hardness of your hearts. In other words, there has to be a lot of transformative work. There is a progress to redemption. There is a way in which God is continually working in this world to bring us to the point where he could send his son. And the fullness of his truth could be revealed. But when you follow the Bible stories, you see that they're already working in that way. And so consider this question. There are multiple examples of husbands with many wives through the text of Scripture. Give me one example of where that worked out. And you can't think of any because there aren't any. What the biblical text is showing us is when there's more than one woman or more than one man involved with the same husband or wife, it simply does not work. Time after time, what we see is multiple wives lead someone's heart astray. Multiple wives lead to conflict in the family. Abraham, Sarah, and Hagar, Jacob, Leah, and Rachel. Through these stories, through the experiences of those who've gone before us, we see that when we depart from God's design for marriage, we do not prosper. It's not the way that God meant us to be. Today, we don't seem to struggle as much with having multiple wives, or do we? Because there's different ways now, today, that we can be unfaithful to one another. I mean, there can be literal unfaithfulness, where someone commits adultery. There can be virtual unfaithfulness, where we turn to things like pornography. There can be emotional unfaithfulness, where we form connections with people who are not our spouses. What we see through the pages of Scripture is the design that God has for us and how he is moving us to that place where he desires us to be. And so every lesson, every passage of Scripture is important for us. It reveals God's pattern and his design for our lives. And it creates a culture, it creates a context where we see the goodness of God's design. But we're going to struggle with it because our hearts are inclined against it. You see, when God puts these limitations around us, we tend to see laws as things that are undesirable because they limit our freedom. But laws likewise create the possibility for prosperity. They create the possibility for thriving. Because when we work within the lines that God designed us to be, we now function in a way that is in accordance with how he made us. But that process of coming back to God is a difficult one. And so one of the things that we see that God does for us is he gives us these markers, these things that we are to remember, the ways that he's worked in our families with one another. And so as I'm going to shortly ask Nathaniel to come up and give his testimony, I'd encourage you to share with one another 
the stories of God, how God has worked in your lives. And there's incredible pain and suffering, I know, within this congregation, difficulties that people have gone through, heartbreaks that we've all experienced. And it's important to share both those struggles and the difficulties we faced, as well as the graciousness of God. Because both in one another's lives and the pages of Scripture, we'll see the painful effects of our sinfulness, but the continuing story of God's faithfulness. Let's close in prayer. Father God, we thank you for this record of Esau. We thank you for how his lives and his descendants teach us these lessons, these important lessons. It's not a happy history. It's a history of a people who fell into sin, became indistinct from the Canaanites, and now oppose the very people of God coming back to the land that God had promised them. And at the same time, it's our story. Because this world is full of peoples who have turned away from you. But Lord, you've called us to come out of this world, to live lives in accordance with your word, according to the pattern that was given to us. And we pray, Lord, that as a church, as a community, that we will strengthen one another in your way. That we will encourage those who despair, that we will help those who are suffering, that we will rejoice with those who receive your blessing. And we ask, Lord, that you would help us to be a good and faithful people who bring honor to your name. And we pray this in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. Nathaniel, if you're ready, I'll ask you to come up and give your testimony.